The following is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. The uh, book of First Peter, I won't do too much of, uh, of an introduction to the book, other than the book was uh, written, uh, thought to be written between AD 62 and 64. And uh, it's written by the Apostle Peter, as it's seen in the uh, introduction, where he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he is the author, and the audience to which he is writing, um, some think that uh, it's probably a Jewish audience, uh, given also by, uh, uh, by what we read in the beginning of the book, uh, those who are exiled and dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Now, <coughs> there are also others who think that uh, there might be, uh, this might be also referring to Gentiles because of uh, certain verses, and su- such as um, uh, in chapter 4, verse 3, where it says that they were ignorant, empty, they were uh, uh, involved in idolatry. Regardless, I think... Um, whether they were Jews, uh, Jewish believers, or whether they were Gentiles, um, Peter is writing to remind them of their great, uh, uh, of the great blessing and mercy that God has uh, endowed them with, and the calling to holiness. So I think Peter himself uh, summarizes it very well. Uh, the what the book is about at the end of the of the book, where he says, "I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you." and to testify that this is the true grace of God, and to stand firm in it. We do not maintain our faith as if we were to wonder whether we shall lose it at last, but as those who are assured of its victory. Chapter 1 opens very boldly, I would say, with the doctrine of election. Peter does not warm us up into this. He does not uh, beat about, you know, beat around the bush, and then here he comes with what he means. No, he goes right into it. And this is, this is not the only letter we see. We have other, uh, there's the New Testament that starts with election. But uh, here, uh, here Peter starts out uh, by, uh, by saying uh, that to those chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through uh, the sancti- uh, sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, here we shall see uh, three components of uh, God's election. Uh, the first is the basis, which is, uh, which is His foreknowledge. According, He has chosen us according to His foreknowledge. That's the basis, then the means, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and then the purpose to be obedient and to be sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. We won't go too much in depth uh, into the meaning of uh, foreknowledge, however, I'll use the text that Peter has given us to briefly uh, <coughs> touch a little bit about it. However, for further information, you can always go to um, the theology <coughs> class on Wednesday that Todd has covered, I believe it's the third week, where he talks about uh, foreknowledge, uh, the meaning, and uh, also I believe um, Bob has preached uh, on, uh, on that as well, so you can always uh, go to that for more information. So, if foreknowledge is understood as God looking down the corridor of time, as, uh, as many uh, believe, 
then uh, all, uh, God only know in the future, but not divinely orchestrating it, then this verse does not make much sense in the way it is constructed. You may have the basis, if you understand for knowledge to be uh, as God only looking down the corridor of time, but you cannot have the means and purpose. If God only knows what will happen, how can it be said that he used means to make it happen? Because the verse says that he used, he chose us according to uh, his foreknowledge through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And if God only knows the believer's obedience, then how can it be said that he purposed their obedience? Because our text says that God chose us in order that we are for us to be obedient and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. So since it is God who has both sanctified his people and purposed their obedience, then we can say that for knowledge is not simply God knowing the future, but God orchestrating it and God knowing the future that he has brought about. And in Acts 15, we read, Known to God from long ago are, are what? All his works. God doesn't know what will happen. God knows his work, his plan. In short, God has uh, God acted in time according to what he had planned in eternity. And I, I think uh, the verse in Ephesians 1.11, where it says, In him we have also received an inheritance because we are predestined, Here's, a, uh, again, the word you know, uh, chosen that we have here. We have chosen according to foreknowledge. Here we have predestined according to what? To the plan. So foreknowledge involves God planning. It's not just God having a foresight of the future, but him uh, planning that future. So according to the plan of one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. Having said that, uh, having addressed uh, himself to the believers as chosen, he now wants to remind them of the great mercy of God toward them. And he, this is the great mercy of God to which he is referring to. The first is that he has given us birth. And also that he guards us by his power through faith uh, for salvation. Uh, in the first that he has given us birth, this is the mercy defined. What is God's mercy? Uh, him giving us birth. And then we have the privileges, the privileges of this birth, which is uh, we are born into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And also the means is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, these are a done deal. God has sealed these very truths, these promises that he is giving to us is not just to tell us here are some possibilities but rejoice in this very truth that I have done once and for all that's why Peter is able to burst into his doxology by saying blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ now with a faithful promise such as this the heaven burden of doubt and uh, you know, is lifted from all those who have and are feeling the crushing weight of it not only is your inheritance kept for you, but you are also kept for it. Because as we read uh, here, in the first chapter it says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Doesn't this seem to say to you, come all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, be no longer downcast. Let your heart not lose hope. 
Come and turn your morning into joy. And those who have struggled with the idea of whether they are losing salvation, they do feel the weight of it. And therefore, this comes as a balm, as a balm to their soul. And so, come and rejoice in this very truth of God's election. And take this song of adoration and sing it loudly. Let its reverberating sound ascend to heaven, to the glory of God, and descend to hell, to the shame and dismay of the evil one. In this very thing, uh, Peter goes on to say, you rejoice in this. And by this he refers to God's great mercy, that he has chosen us, that he has given us birth, and that he, by his power, through faith, is keeping us for the day of redemption. You rejoice in this, he's saying in verse uh, 6, even though, now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. Now it shifts a little bit. There is this great joy in display. Now there is suffering in view as well. But how good it is that Peter approaches this way. He doesn't just come up with, uh, with this sort of bad news. But he gives you a good news at first. Not any good news which is equal to the bad news. But it's so surpassingly great, uh, great that the bad news fades <laughs> in comparison. So that when you hear it, you're not dismayed. But having this eternal uh, hope in God and this assurance of salvation, you are able to hear it with uh, a proper understanding. So salvation necessitates, necessitates trials because being born of God necessitates also enmity with flesh, with the world, and with the devil. This is to be expected. These enemies are what will test your faith. And, uh, uh, but the faith that God has given us, of course, is more than a match. So that in the end, it will result to the praise, glory, and honor at the re revelation of Jesus Christ. So the reality of suffering calls for our sobriety. We are uh, not to have wrong expectations as the, uh, as the gospel of prosperity uh, tells us uh, of the expectation that we are to have. No, we are to expect that the faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ will bring about <coughs> suffering in the flesh. Second is our hopeful expectation. We are to set our hopes completely, not partially, on the grace that is about to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If entire cities like Sodom and Gomorrah were engulfed in fire and brimstone, and, and brimstone yet uh, brimstone, yet Lot was re uh, rescued, and if the whole world was deluged in water, yet Noah and his family was protected, then God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. But in light of suffering, we're also to know that we should live holy. Our suffering should not change us as believers, not what is to be expected. We must live holy, first in light of the obedience uh, to God as children. If we are children unto God, then honor and glory is due to Him. And as we see in Malachi 1.6, where God says, as a son honors his father, and a son honors his father and a servant his master, then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Secondly, is a word awareness to the holiness and fatherhood of our God. God's great mercy is so great that it produces in us, or it should produce in us, great reverence for God. 
He has become our father, though before we, without cause, hated him. Our holy conduct ought to be for nothing else other than for the sake of our merciful father. I foolishly may be so bold as to sin against my soul, but I cannot sin against my, my God and my, my Holy Father. The bitterness of sin is not so much in that we are condemned by it, but that by it we dishonor God. And when God comes and saves us, it is not so glorious in that we are rescued from everlasting ruin, as it is that we are saved for His glory. Not so much that we will live forever, as we will live forever to praise Him. Also, our conduct ought to be holy in light of the preciousness of Christ's blood. And we see here in verse, uh, in verse 19, where it says, You are bought with the precious blood of Christ. Now, whenever you are tempted to sin, think of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, by which you have been bought. Think of his great sacrifice. You cannot sin when you think of him. You cannot sin when you think of your Lord's anguish and of his shed blood and of his Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. And when you think of his death, how can you sin? This is the strength by which we are strengthened against fight, <coughs> against the fight um, towards sin and our maintaining a holy conduct. Now in chapter 2 and chapter uh, 3, we will see uh, that the holy conduct is a dying to sin and living to righteousness in all areas of life. A Christian ought to be holy not in one particular area, but in all areas of life, whether that be personal, domestic, public, and church. And this is, at, uh, at, at the end of chapter 1, uh, Peter says, this is the word of the gospel that was proclaimed to you. After stating all that we have uh, mentioned, it's, uh, by this gospel, Peter means that God has chosen as, and sanctified us so that we may be obedient to him. This is the gospel that calls for a radical change. God declares not only that we are saved from wrath, but also that he has redeemed us from our empty way of living. Not only does he, that he has set us free, but that he has set us free to serve him as his slaves not as we were to serve a harsh master, but as a loving father who has purchased us by the precious blood of his dear son. Now we are given commands uh, by God, and we will list those commands uh, here. And those, those commands are given so that by the wisdom of the scriptures, we may escape the corruption in this world through evil desires. For the time has come for judgment to begin, with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of the ungodly? The first command that we see is rid yourself of all malice. And it starts in chapter 2 by saying that rid yourself of all malice, all, de all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. And you have that word all. There is not some of it, but get rid of all of it. All vice, all sin must be gone. Spare none of it. God must have your whole heart or none of it. God will not tolerate us being double-minded. Today with God, tomorrow with the world. I'm reminded of Joshua when he said, Choose this day whom you will serve. 
make your statement, get, get your thinking right. Are you a believer or are you not? Will you serve the Lord or will you not? It cannot be both. Not only do we have the negative command, but we also have the positive command. And this is the idea of put off and put on. And the best way to put off something is by putting on something else, which shall replace and get rid of, of the previous. And the, uh, the positive command is desire the pure milk of the Word of God. And the purpose for it is so that you may grow up into your salvation. Not grow up in salvation, not grow up so that you may be saved, but as you are saved in this salvation, grow up in it. There is a need for, for growth in the salvation which God has already provided. The second is offer spiritual sacrifices accepted uh, to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, the believers are called to live for God and to have their life in such a way that it is as a living sacrifice to Him. The reasons for it given is our identity in God. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, God's people, and recipients of his mercy. The purpose is so that we may proclaim the praises of God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The second command, and again, uh, most of them are starting with the negative and then uh, with the positive, is abstain from sinful desires. That is in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 11. Abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And we are to do this as strangers and exiles. Now, can a man, says Proverbs 6, 27, 28, can a man embrace fire and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on burning coals without scorching his feet? We may uh, very well say the same. Can a man sin without waging war against his soul? Whenever you are to think that your sin will harm no one, think of this, believer. Think that every time you commit sin, you are striking against your soul. And every time you indulge in sinful flesh uh, and in its desires, that is a battering against your soul and an attempt to destroy it. Take sin not lightly. Take it seriously. Because your soul is being assaulted when you are sinning. And this is the deceptive nature of sin, making you think that you are gaining by it, where in fact you are losing greatly, indulging in it. The third positive command is conduct yourself honorably, honorably again, uh, among the Gentiles. And that the word among is that the believers are expected naturally to live also with unbelievers. It's not that once you become a believer, then you seclude yourself. But as you live in the world, you are to conduct yourself honorably. What is the purpose of it? So that unbelievers may observe our good works and glorify God on the day He visits. Because our co conduct not only glorifies God, but also does good to our neighbor. So that they may see God's goodness. That the faith is true. Faith is living. It's not just an ideology. Look, they may say how faith has changed their lives. And so when God visits them, they, they, may, they may turn to Him. Second positive command is submit to every human authority. A good Christian is one who is an obedient person, who does not 
find cause to rebel against authority, but because of God, being conscious of God, and because he knows that the authority is set by God, he gladly submits to it. The reason is, uh, also, uh, the third one is endure justice, which is a godly response to ungodly treatment. Uh, in the chapter 2, we see household slaves submit to your masters with all reverence. Now, this submission is a godly response. It's not that you, whatever they say, whatever they do, you hush about it, but as, as you are treated unfairly, unjustly, you are not to have a sinful response, but a godly response. And we have reasons for it. Verse 20 uh, to 25 are summarized, but it brings favor with God. We are called to this. And also Christ's suffering, which is an example for us, which is uh, an example to our endurance. And also, also it is the purpose of our dying to sin and living to righteousness. Now, when we ask people why, or, or even ourselves, why did Christ die for us? Our immediate response, and it is a, a true response, is so that he may save us. And that is true. But we don't hear very often that, God, that Jesus Christ died so that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. In Christ dying, we find our dying. And in Christ living, we find our living as well. And just as Christ was crucified, also our old self was crucified with God. And just as Christ rose from the dead, we may also walk in the newness of, of life, as we see in Romans 6. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So that you too, so, uh, so you too consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This new self, created in God's likeness, is the healing which Christ produced by his wounds. Which he says in verse, um, in verse 24, the end of it, by his wounds you have been healed. And this is the meaning, this is the primary meaning that God's healing provides not physical healing, but it is God transforming us so that we may die to sin and live and live to righteousness. How do we know that's the meaning? Because this is quoted from Isaiah for the purpose of supporting the effect that resulted from Christ's death, which is our dying to sin and living to righteousness. Furthermore, he provides explanation for it, and he gives the word for in verse 25. It says, for you were like sheep going astray. So you are now healed by his wounds. Why? For you were like sheep going astray, which signifies our previous disobedience as a sickly condition. But you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, signifying our current obedience as a healthy condition. The command uh, three is also to the wives and to the husbands. First to the wives, submit to your husbands. In the same way, wives, submit yourself to your own husband. In the same way, he means having that godly response in light of injustice done to you. Because he's mentioning the slaves being obedient to them and having a godly endurance. And then he gives Christ as an example as, as what that means. Christ did not revile in, in return. He did not re return evil for, for evil. In the same way, slaves are to be uh, against their masters. In the same way, wives are to submit themselves to their husbands. The purpose is so that their unbelieving husbands may be won by words, not by words, but by their pure, reverent lives. 
and all, not only to submit but also to adorn themselves not outwardly with uh, braiding of the hairs and with the jewelry but to adorn the inner person the reason is because the inner person has imperishable qualities has great worth in God's sight and it is after the likeness of godly women of old now let not husbands think that they are off the hook there is commands for them as well and their command is to live with their wives in an understanding way husbands in the same way the same word is used here live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner and weak doesn't mean weak uh, in the sense that are less valuable but uh, weaker uh, physically show them honor showing them honor how as co-heirs of grace of the grace of life you are to also think of your wives that they are inherit uh, inheritors of, of God's uh, grace just the same as you are purpose for both women and men is so that your prayers will not be hindered and we have a uh, quote for Martin Luther who says but in order to have true, pr true prayer you must put away all disharmony unwillingness and wrath otherwise you will never pray well yes you feel a hindrance is in the way as soon as you begin to say our Father who art in heaven. Therefore, Peter teaches wives to be subject to their husbands, and on the other hand, he teaches husbands to deal, to dwell with their wives according to knowledge. If they do not, their prayers will be hindered, which will be a sign that they are not Christians, that they do not enjoy the forgiveness of their sins by God, because they do not forgive one another. Now we mentioned that our holiness, our holy conduct should be in all areas of our lives. And that is also included in the church. The positive command that we have is finally all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another, be compassionate and humble. How we are to do this? We are told by not paying evil for evil or insult for insult and secondly giving a blessing. This is our response. Not only are we not to return the same evil for evil, but on the contrary, we got to go the extra mile, so to speak. Do good. Do good, not only to withhold your anger, not only to, to withhold pain, you know, pain in kind, but, uh, but to do good. We are called to this. Our conduct also toward outsiders. You have to do good, though we might suffer, uh, you might suffer at their hands. Our good conduct cannot be interrupted by fear of men, but, but must keep going in light of holiness, uh, of the holiness of Christ our Lord. We have to be ready to give a defense of our hope. And we are to do that with gentleness and respect. And the purpose is to put to shame those who, discra uh, who disparage our good conduct. Now, before we move on to chapter 4, any questions or any comments? Go ahead. Uh, back on that page um, where you talked about when we ask why did Christ die mm -hmm. so that he may save us, I, I like to say to people, well, eternal life is not just the afterlife, it's right now. It makes a huge difference in your life, the blessings, and then obviously who you live for and the choices you make to become more Christ-like. Yeah. So a lot yeah. of people just think of it, oh, I'll do it on my deathbed, you know, for afterlife. So. Yeah, that's a good point. Chapter 4. <coughs> It's mentioned the Christian attitude toward suffering. And uh, 
he uses the word when he starts therefore or for this reason the reasons which are given uh, above Christ has not been spared from suffering he being God perfect undeserving of any any suffering he himself suffered therefore since Christ suffered in the flesh arm yourself also with the same understanding what is the cause of our suffering in the flesh we are united with Christ if we belong to him we shall be treated likewise if we belong to him then we are his unto holiness and we're not our own unto sinful living anymore we are dead to sinful desires and we are alive to God's will let the one who claims to be a believer yet never yet never say oh a wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death or that has never been ridiculed for the name of Christ think it over whether he is a true believer when we previously lived in sin we were totally comfortable with ourselves and at home with our own flesh and at peace with the world but once we became Christians once we believed then it was a strange change we became as strangers to ourselves and a stench to the world True mark of faith is not that life becomes easier when you become a believer, but that it becomes harder. Not that you gain popularity with the world, but that by it you are slandered and judged. Our duties, what, are, what should be our duties uh, as we encounter suf suffering and as we have the attitude that God wants us to, to have, which is godly attitude? What are our, our duties as the end is drawing near? This is a good reminder, and not only does it help us with our patience, but uh, it helps us to, to bear well under, under it, knowing that this, uh, uh, there will be an end to this, but also God will, will make all things right, and he will judge uh, everything. In light of that, we are to be alert and sober-minded for prayer, but uh, we are to maintain constant love for one another, serving one another, honoring the word of God, Rejoicing as we share in Christ's suffering and entrusting ourselves to a faithful Creator while, while doing good. The reasons for our duties is the impending judgment of God. And verse 18 says, For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty what will become of the ungodly and the sinner i have a quote here from spurgeon who says if the wheat must be winnowed how certainly will the chaff be destroyed if the gold must pass through the fire how assuredly will the dross be consumed if there is a great fire in a city and a massive stone structure with iron girders can only be saved by the firemen with great difficulty what will be the fate of a wooden house covered with tar and full of oil? This is the condition of the sinner and he who disregards God's warning. It's like a, a wooden house with oil. You only need but to strike the match and off it is engulfed in flames to be destroyed. That's a good picture for us to have uh, in mind that our God living is... Uh, is it's not only something that we struggle with how to make it, but it is glorious in that in it we are, we are safe. 
we are safe because God has saved us and God has called us to this and therefore we do not we do not fear God's uh, judgment for we are working are working in obedience to him uh, in chapter 5 before we move on uh, any questions any any things that you would like clarified of uh, things you have in mind go ahead and your reference to the verse you just talked about the judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Uh, how does that play out uh, in respect to uh, you know judgment? I mean, does judgment begin with the house of the Lord first and uh, over unbelief against unbelievers? You know what I'm asking? Uh, <clears throat> is the church to be judged purified before unbelievers even now you know what I mean mm -hmm. yes yeah, so I think uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a good question which I uh, also uh, thought about it and also in light of what uh, what um, Todd preached today first gather uh, gather the um, the tares and throw them into the fire and then put the wheat in my barn it seems like the order is, is quite uh, the opposite <coughs> however I think what what uh, Peter means here is that, and when he says, "For the time has come for judgment to begin," the time has come. It it is here. It is now, and the judgment has come. Now it's not only referring to to the very end where God uh, will judge. Certainly that is true, but judgment in another sense has started with us. Has not God judged within our hearts? Has he not convinced us of sin? And has he not warned us of what's to come? And have we not obeyed him through his warning? Judgment has become, has, has begun. But it has also begun to the world. They're also hearing it, yet they are not listening to it. And so, if we are saved by difficulty, meaning that this has already uh, taken place, if we are saved uh, through difficulty, what would be uh, the outcome of, of the ungodly? So if a person, if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, meaning that the judgment has, has started and salvation has occurred, although difficult because he's talking about all the suffering that the believer has to, uh, to go with and that he has to be godly in this life. If that's, if that's the, the case, then what would be of the, uh, of the ungodly when God actually does give the final blow? Does that make sense? Is that helpful? So it's not necessary that it's like uh, only at the very uh, last day when God shall give the final verdict. But uh, the time has come for judgment to begin. So, and uh, it's not. It, it, it's it's more like a like a process. It has it has started. It has started to begin, and then it will culminate. That makes sense. I had to think about this too as I was, as I, as I was talking. But I was mostly thinking also that uh, whenever we encounter things that seem to be going against some other verses, I think it's uh, because of also of our limited understanding, we are to take the verse as it is and by obedience, take it as it is and, uh, and look at what it is telling us and seek to be obedient to it. And God, when it pleases Him to broaden our understanding, in time we shall say, oh, yes, that's how it is. 
Chapter 5, Exhortation to the Under Shepherds. Their duty. Shepherd God, um, God's flock. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness to the suffering of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory to be about to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. This is their duty, this is their primary duty of, uh, of the elders, of, uh, of the shepherds of, of God's church. And the manner in which they are to do it is not as they please, but as God, uh, as God uh, has ordained it, and as God uh, has uh, clarified in his word, which is willingly, not under compulsion, eagerly, not out of greed for money, being examples to the flock, not lording over them. What is their reward for their duty? It is the unfading crown of glory at the appearing of <coughs> the chief shepherd. This is very encouraging for those who, who labor uh, to hear this, this uh, great uh, promise. Exhortation to the sheep. Their duty is to be subject to the elders. There is an order in God's house, my dear friends. And if we love God, we ought to find no difficulty obeying His word. If you love me, says Jesus Christ, you will obey Him. Therefore, find no difficulty to submit yourself to the elders. Let it be a sweet thing to you. Let there be a willingness. Let there be an eagerness. Let there be a great desire to submit to your elders. Not because of who they are, but of who God is. And in looking at them, whenever they exhort you, look at this very fact that God has appointed them. And when you obey them, you obey God. And so, be subject to the elders. How we are to do that? Clothe yourself with humility. It takes humility to be subject, uh, subjected to, uh, to, to another. And that does not come naturally to us. But clothe yourself with humility. Cast all your cares on God. Our cares cost, uh, usually uh, cause us not to humble ourselves. I have my own interests. And these go in con contrast uh, uh, with, with what, what, what I am asked to, to, be, to submit to does not go uh, in line with my desires. And so you have cares, and these cares take precedence and cause you to be disobedient and not to be subject. But you are to humble yourself. And how are you to do that? By casting all your cares on God. Do not worry about that. All you have to worry about is obey God and be subject to the elders. And there are dangers if we don't. And that is that we are displaying pride in ourselves. We may conceal it as a worry, but a worry is pride. For we are told to leave our cares to God and not to ourselves. And also we shall be faced with resistance by God himself. And that is a harsh thing to hear. Whenever you are disobedient, God is resisting you. What is the reward for your subjection and obedience to God is exaltation at the proper time. Now is not the time for you to, to be disobedient and for you to voice your own interest and for you to take first place. No, now is the time of humility. And there shall be also a time of exaltation. Now is not the time to be first. It's the time, if you want to be first, at the proper time, there's the time to be last. If anyone wants to be great, said Jesus, let him be the servant of all. This is the definition of greatness. Not as the world displays, but as God 
this place is. Here's an exhortation to the whole church, their duty. <clears throat> Sober-mindedness and alertness and resisting the devil. How are we to do that? This is, this is wonderful. The God in his word not only tells us what to do, but how to do it. So that we're not left wondering how am I to do it. <laughs> the God in his wisdom provides the way, the grace, and all that we need. The manner we are to do that is in the faith. <coughs> I have a quote from Sproul who says, I think Peter <coughs> meant, and when he says I think Peter meant it before, because he previously said that some take it to believe that you've got to be strong in the faith. Um, <coughs> immovable, which is you know, which which is true that the verse can be read. But he said, um, he he said, I think that Peter meant that the way we resist him, meaning the devil, is by having ourselves deeply rooted in the content of Christian faith or doctrine. Doctrine has to do with God's revealed truth, and those who master the doctrine of the Word of God have a solid foundation by which they are empowered to resist the devouring enemy. Now here we are given a comforting promise to the suffering believer. Not only did he start with great pro uh, uh, comforting promise in the beginning, but he also sandwiches it also with the light. Keep this in mind, he says, yeah, I've told you, but now I've told you all the difficulties. Do not get lost in these things. Let, uh, let me remind you again of God's promises. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen and support you after you have suffered a little while. God has called us to his eternal glory and our present suffering cannot change that immutable trajectory on which God has set us. This is the difference between suffering well, my dear friends, and suffering miserably whenever you go and, uh, through suffering as, as a Christian. If we be God's children, it is certain that we will suffer, but our suffering will be for a while. After that, my dear friends, we shall have no more to deal with suffering. For God will restore, establish, strengthen and support us, and we will enjoy that eternal glory to which God has called us. Let us join with Peter in his doxology, and together with him say, to God be the dominion forever. Amen. Amen. We have, we, we have run out of time. But uh, there are some, also some verses that were um, difficult, over which we did not go, neither did we have time to. But if you are willing to stay a couple more minutes, and if you want to talk about it, I think no more than five minutes, we can, we can use the time. Otherwise, we will uh, close in prayer. Go ahead. Two questions about um, you, you have a positive plan. And, and so, so unbelievers may observe our good works and glorify God for the deeds. That seems to be contrary to the way the unbelievers should behave. Uh, say it again. The statement here says, so that unbelievers may observe our good works and glorify God in the deeds. Why would they glorify God unrighteous? Well, that is that is the that is the the result out of our own good deeds. Let's say, just like Jesus said, you know, let your light shine so that uh, others seeing your good works may glorify God. Well, I think as a believer, or before, you may have experienced this as, uh, as an unbeliever before, that something that kind of started this wandering in your heart is because you saw a difference between a believer and a non-believer. And it made you think, 
What makes them different? Why are they so kind? Why do they not talk as others talk? Why do they not behave as others behave? I would like to do that. I would like to be like that. And so they inquire more. But this inquiry does not come from their own. It comes from God's grace in their heart. And God uses the means of our holy living to bring others to him. And by vis God's visitation, he means this very thing. That God comes and convic uh, convicts them through our, our, our good works. Does that make sense? And so they will give glory to God for, you know, for, for this very thing. They will thank God that you know, all of kind, that there is kindness in the world because God is, uh, is working through, through his children. Um, just to add to that, uh, if that passage is talking about at his appearance when he returns, every knee will bow and every yeah. tongue confess judgment. So at that point, they're going to have a recognition of the truth anyway. So I'm wondering if it's just been adding on to the recognition, oh, Jesus is Lord. Oh, I remember when that Christian was <coughs> in that way, and it's just adding to their glory. Yeah, that, that, that's, uh, that can uh, also be the case. However, he is calling them to presently, as strangers, abstain from sinful desires which wage war and presently conduct themselves honorably. And uh, because that which Peter said doesn't bear much on whether we have acted uh, justly or not. They will simply bow down before Christ because he is the Lord. They will have no choice. But here, the ch uh, it seems to imply that there is a choice driven by our good works. So but both, both are definitely true, but I think... The first is uh, more in the context than, than the second. Go ahead. Um, I like the verse, um, Ephesians 5, where it says, Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. That's always a good way for me to think about like, the Trinity. Because it's out of reverence for Christ that we know one another as we return. Um, and it's hard to explain that to Yes. Indeed, that's a, that's a good <coughs> reminder. We are out of time. Let us thank the Lord for this uh, time and then we will start dismissed. Our precious Lord, thank you so much for opening our eyes to see the beauty of holiness. How sweet it is, Lord, um, to, to submit to you, to obey you. And that is an indication that we are your children. Because as John says, uh, your commands are not burdensome to us because we have overcome the world by faith. And so the faith that you have given us gives us joy in obeying you because <coughs> obeying to you is, is, our uh, is our satisfaction. Lord, we pray that as we have heard of your word, I pray, Lord, that this word will take root in our hearts and will cause us to live holy, to honor you, to love one another. Lord, we look forward to your coming again. Uh, help us, Lord, to honor you so that when you come, we may hear that uh, great word. Um, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. In your precious name, Lord, we pray and thank you. Amen. You've been listening to Presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent.
for permission, go to mbcmi.org.